As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Veronica Clark, of course, at Citigroup. Veronica, not only do you talk about the place of inflation right now, but you say, if anything, you'll be surprised to the upside. What parts of American inflation push us to the upside? Yeah, yeah. When we do our inflation forecast, you know, we really do a very detailed bottoms up forecast. Um, and we're still seeing strength in things like shelter prices. I think everyone could be maybe overestimating how quickly those still might slow. Um, but really, it comes down to those core non-shelter service prices. That's what Powell has focused us on. Those can stay persistently <clears throat> strong. Things like medical services, recreation um, can definitely see a lot of upside there still. Let's focus on medical inflation. It's such a large part of the uh, inflation uh, pie. What is your year-over-year forward on medical inflation? Dare I say it's double-digit? I don't know if we'll quite get to, to double digits, um, but I think we can definitely see that, that component picking up. Um, not even necessarily in CPI data that we're going to get tomorrow, but I would look more for PPI data later in the week. That's what will matter for PCE inflation. But you can definitely see that running consistently at five, you know, maybe six percent, you know, getting closer wow. to double digits, maybe not quite there yet, though. Veronica, you think this Federal Reserve can go further, you and a team over at Citigroup. The big question outstanding is ultimately to what extent the banking stress of the last month is a substitute for rate hikes. Veronica, why do you and the team think that what we've seen develop in the last month is contained, that the worst of it is done? Yeah, I think we're, we're seeing things stabilize now. And it's not that we wouldn't expect you know no impact on activity or inflation from tightening lending. And this is probably does mean that lending standards tighten more and, and credit pulls back a bit more. Um, but we should have already been expecting some of that, of course, you know, from from higher rates. And it's not that you're going to see it immediately. You know, this is much more a second half of the year, end of the year type issue for the broader economy. Um, and then for the Fed, you know, the more near term pressing issue is that you'll still have three months or so at least of pretty consistently strong inflation prints. And it seems hard to, to see a scenario where they're pausing where we're still running core CPI at, at 0.5 every month. Just to frame the current split, the divergence, you're well aware that the market is trading well below the Fed's dot for year end. Veronica, you're on the other side of this. You're well above the dot mm -hmm. for year end. Just give me some numbers on that. Where do you see the terminal rate still for this Federal Reserve? Yeah, we, we still have that terminal rate at five and a half to 575. So that's you know, a 25 basis point hike in May, um, another in June, another in July. Um, and again, it comes down to this timing issue where you know, we'll right. have tomorrow's CPI report before the May meeting. It's probably a lower bar for them to hike still in May. You know, that's what the dots show. Um, right. But before the June meeting, after the May meeting, we'll have two more CPI prints. And those look like they can stay consistently strong. And then at the June meeting, you know, we'll have an up 
update to projections for inflation, growth, and the dots. Um, and it seems unlikely to us that right. you know, the Fed will have to be revising higher their inflation forecast and then not still hiking. Um, I think that, that keeps them going. The markets, of course, will, will just get there over time as we get consistently strong inflation data. Veronica, this is really important. What you just said there is stop the show. You and Andrew are reaffirming a set of rate moves higher. So when you talk to Keith Horowitz, I mean, I know you're not on speaking terms, but how does your banking team at Citigroup adapt in, I guess the crisis is over, but adapt to flows in banking, given your economic call? How do they adapt to that? Yeah, I certainly don't want to, to speak for them, but I think, you know, the, the system as a whole, you know, we, we know that there are these issues, um, but it does seem like, you know, the Fed's facilities are, are working to control liquidity issues. And, and if things do stabilize, well, we know that the Fed has all of those other tools to deal with financial stability, but we do still have this price stability problem and their only tool really right. to deal with inflation is rates. So, so where, where does a money market fund go? I mean, I don't want you to be a rate strategist for Citigroup, but if I got the Holland Horse Clark call, I think I'm looking at a money market fund of five and a half or even higher percent, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we certainly would have, yeah, short-term yields going higher again. Um, you could see more more deposit outflows, of course, but we were, that was already happening even, even before the banking crisis. Um, but that is what needs to happen. You know, you need people to stop spending. You know, you need credit co to contract, and that's what slows the economy and brings down inflation. John, you know, I look at this, John, and besides our compliance officer just fell off the chair, uh, listening to that, I mean, if you get a city group framework, what does that do to SOFR, LIBOR, all sure. the Ira Jersey stuff? What does that do to somebody watching this or listening to this, to that money market choice? 5.65%. That's not 5%. That's a bigger percent. With a vengeance, you go there. So, Veronica, as you pointed out, that would be a feature and not a bug of monetary policy. This is what they're trying to achieve. But given what we've seen develop in the last month, do you not think that would contribute to renewed stress in a financial system? Yeah, it, it's, that's certainly a risk, and we have seen some of those cracks show up at this point. But I, I mean, I think that for the Fed, at least, you know, they would see their all their other tools that they've used, you know, the the new facility, you know, the discount window, as helping to to control those financial stability issues. And and it is a really tough situation. I'm not saying it's a it's an easy thing for them. It could be an uncomfortable couple months here, um, but you do still, unfortunately, have an inflation issue. Can we talk about what's developed in the labour market as well? On Friday, what we saw was a really resilient NFP, non-farm payrolls print, once again. We've had a year of those, just upside surprise, upside surprise. But I don't think we've had a downside surprise since the March report, which came in early April of last year. Veronica, some people look back to the data of last week and they're looking for noise versus signal. Was the data before the payrolls print the noise or the signal? Because we had a string of misses going into that print. Yeah, yeah, we had you know some softer ISM ratings. We had job openings that that came down. You know, revisions to um, initial and continuing jobless claims that maybe those look a lot higher now and are, are trending a bit higher. Um, I would say you know a lot of this data we should still take with somewhat of a grain of salt. 
um, especially that claims data there looks like there's you know some seasonal pattern that didn't get worked out with some seasonal factor revisions um, and I would say you know all of it is consistent with you know an economy that should be slowing but but certainly is not you know headed off a cliff into an immediate recession um, but we should be expecting you know ISM services in a 50 55 range we should be expecting job openings to be wow. coming down um, and I think you know the labor market data of course on on Friday it is still a very strong labor market the unemployment rate is still very low it looked a lot like a 2019 kind of jobs print but when you're running core inflation that's pretty consistently at five percent you have to be worried that you know a tight labor market like that will just add to the upside risk for inflation Hey, Veronica, this was great, as always. Fabulous. Veronica Clark there Fabulous. over at City, working alongside Andrew Hollenhorst with a call for Fed to take rates to 550. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is an extremely important conversation because of the number of narratives in Washington. In all my years of doing this, the spring meetings of the IMF in Morocco later this year in October, there's five, six, it's like, it's like Howard Johnson's years ago. There are 28 flavors of narratives on where we are heading. A student of this is Douglas Redeker, managing partner, International Capital Strategies, but far more and a former executive board member of the IMF and affiliated with democratic politics uh, in Washington. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. You're at Vassar a million years ago, and you're sitting there and they go, look, IMF, there's two narratives. What happened? Why do we have 14 narratives now? Oh, I, look, I, I don't think you can start with the IMF of 20, 30, 40 years ago. I think it's a completely different institution. I think right now I mean, it has very little to do with the IMF and more to do with the world. So I guess we're better off that there's not one overwhelming crisis. If you go back to the Greek crisis, the mm -hmm. Euro crisis, COVID, even Russia, Ukraine, those were dominant themes that squeezed everything out, else out of the room. I guess if you want to look at this through rose-colored glasses, the fact that we have multiple different narratives is probably better than we're all overwhelmed by a single one. That doesn't mean any single one of those is easy to resolve or the week is going to come out with anything that is concrete. But at least it's better than one thing that everybody's focused on because it's existential. There is in the Financial Times today, and I've been searching for this for three years, folks, three years. What's the right phrase for the attitude we have from the great financial crisis? And Rishi Sharma, ex-Morgan Stanley at the Rockefeller Foundation, absolutely nails it this morning, calling it the rescue culture. Is that what we're trapped in, where every institution goes, there can be no pain, there can be no angst, nobody can go out of business, every deposit's gotta be covered. Do we have an international rescue culture? 
We have a domestic international rescue culture. We have an international rescue culture, whether it's called rescue culture or an entitlement culture. Yeah, I think everybody assumes that there's a put, some form of put, whether that put is a central bank put or a fiscal authorities put or an IMF put. Everybody feels somewhat entitled. You've got me sounding much more pessimistic and negative than I thought I would be. But the fact of the matter is, yes. Imagine if Bramo was here. Oh, my God. He'd be, he'd be standing up walking out. Do you think that sense of entitlement is misplaced? Well, I guess it's well placed if, in the end, those authorities actually blink and write the checks. Right. So if the game is, do we want to avoid another Lehman? If that's the moral hazard play, then fundamentally countries believe countries, companies, investors believe that when things get really bad, somebody, something, some institution is going to bail me out of the worst consequences. And to date, that's been a fairly solid bet. I don't think it's sustainable, but, you know, not being sustainable can be Two years, 20 years, I mean, there's a long time, right? In the long run, we're all dead. And Doug, what did we learn last month with regards to exactly this? Well, so what, we, I think it's too early to know what the long-term consequences are of SVB, Credit Suisse, et cetera. And by the way, I divide the two into totally different camps, but let's lump them together for the purposes of this, which is to say, yes, rather than letting unfettered capitalism, uh, creative destruction play out, Everything is systemic. You want to know what it is we learned? We learned that everything is systemic. So when SVB is suddenly systemic, it was the 16th largest bank in the country, it was not systemic by traditional metrics, but suddenly when it turns out that your Zoom call might not happen on Monday because Zoom was a big depositor at SVB, that's systemic. I don't know if that's how we contemplated systemic when we started this. So if everything is now systemic, is it just implied that all deposits are insured? Oh, look, I think that both uh, Secretary Yellen and other authorities have gone very far to making sure that they send the message that implicitly, yes, but explicitly they don't have the congressionally mandated authority to say yes. So they're saying yes with a caveat, or they're saying no with an asterisk. Yes, but we can't say yes, but yeah, go to sleep at night thinking and knowing that your deposits are insured. Doug, you're work is to combine economics with law. Years ago, Scott Arps and, and all that, and then Salomon Brothers as is, is well. I am fascinated how you respond to an IMF five-year call of economic gloom, of global <laughs> GDP, 3% or less. Melpass came out at World Bank and had a two-handle on some form of present global growth. That's not Barack Obama's better America or better global. How do we get so negative so fast, so entrenched in our gloom. So I have high regard for the economic teams at the bank and the fund. And there's a caveat coming. There's a but. The but is there's a certain amount of groupthink that trickles into a lot of this. And so you have desk economists who factor in their individual country projections into the regional, into the, the WIO or the GFSR. And what you end up with is not necessarily a holistic, um, strategically oriented five-year forecast. It's almost bottoms up to the point where it's two bottoms up. That's the single best discussion of that. I've ever heard. I'll take it one step too far, yeah. <laughs> maybe. Is there space to make the accusation that some of these forecasts are political and not based on economics? Um, 
It depends on how you define political. And what I mean by that is I actually think there's a lot of people who are very technocratic, who keep their heads down, who have their pencils to their papers or the equivalent, and they are making their forecasts based on their best estimates without regard to politics. I think there are some other decisions at these institutions, program lending, certainly policy choices that are highly politicized, probably more than ever before, or at least in the last several decades. Well, listen, Doug, you're being way too polite. Kenneth Rogoff, who's got a nod in equates with the International Monetary Fund, Ken's been borderline scathing that the IMF has become the World Bank. Do you agree? Uh, well, it hasn't become, but it's certainly uh, trending in that direction. I think uh, the current managing director of the IMF's instincts and experience are much more aligned with her experience at the World Bank. And I would make the counter-argument that David Malpass, in taking a harder line on lending to China or enforcing China to the table to be more transparent and more conciliatory towards debt restructuring, has taken a more stingy, which would traditionally be seen as an IMF-style approach, to some of the emergency lending coming can, out of COVID. Can he come every well, day? Well, as Tom can might say, should we, should we make some news here? Are you <laughs> suggesting that Gil Gavis should be at the World Bank and Malpass should be at the IMF? Oh, I, I would never make a suggestion about personnel <laughs> at that level when those decisions have already been taken. Um, whether, in fact, they were the perfect fit for the job under the circumstances that we now have, um, let's say I think both of them have done an admirable job in their current positions, and I wish them the best they of luck. They were given a pandemic. we got to remember that. Absolutely. Yeah. And they, were, they inherited, as I say, this China card, which you know, the IMF traditionally spent a lot of time, as it should, it's its mandate, dealing with debt restructuring, debt relief, debt issues in emerging markets and frontier markets. And that certainly is something that each one of them has handled in a different way. Doug, this was great. We should do this more often. We should. Can we should come down, come down to DC just to catch up with Doug. <laughs> yeah. Douglas Redeker there on the World Bank and the IMF. Let's get straight to Mike Schumacher, the global head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. Mike, great to have you with us, sir, as always. Good to see you, Mike. Good morning. Let's Thanks, talk sir. about the call from Citi. We'll kick things off there. Citi, <coughs> Veronica Clark on this program 30 minutes ago, talking up rates of 550 to 575 on Fed funds. Mike, are you in that camp at all? No, not at this point, John. Look, the Fed wants to hike probably once, maybe twice more, but it's really torn because it's got these obvious troubles in regional banks. Getting to 575 seems like a stretch, impossible, no, but we're not in that camp right now. At the moment, the conversation shifted, Mike. It's gone away from how far the Fed will go to how far they'll have to cut back. Mike, the IMF putting out its research, its outlook, <clears throat> suggesting that rates will return to pre-pandemic levels, Mike. Would you go that far? No, I, look, the IMF's entitled to make forecasts like anybody else. But here's the thing, John. When you think about the dynamics over the last 6 to 12 months, complete shift in psychology, inflation's still stubborn in a lot of countries, I think that's going to keep rates pretty well above pre-pandemic <clears throat> levels for a long time. So back to 2019 levels, not anytime soon, many, many years. Is your macro strategy, Mike Schumacher, based around service sector core not coming down? I mean, you've got a better view on headline. Core is somewhat persistent here. What does service sector core do to the Wells Fargo call? Yeah, frankly, Tom, people care a lot about service sector core because Jay Powell cares about it. So I'm in that camp too. Mr. Powell, it's important to you. It's important to me. It's important to investors. So We've got cores staying pretty stubborn, frankly, for a while. So, mm -hmm. yes, you probably see some moderation, maybe not so much in a couple of days or tomorrow, I guess, when it comes out. But 
fairly soon, but still well above where the Fed wants it to be. Right. So we're all looking at that. We focus on it, but not anywhere near the comfort zone yet. So if I stay on Jay Powell and look at the three-month T-bill, and then I look at the three-month T-bill guesstimate out 18 months, this morning I see a very sustained three-month yield. Does that drive even higher in the coming quarters? Yeah, it's really interesting, Tom, to think about just how much easing the market's priced in. So it's, it's got these two factors out there. One, inflation, bad. Fed wants to squelch it. That implies more hikes. Number two, financial system, angst, rickety structure, et cetera. That right. would imply a lot more cuts. We think there are too many cuts priced in, both for this year and for next year. The big test is going to come in the second part of this month. A lot of earnings releases. If the system gets past that, I think you'll see the number of cuts priced for 23 and 24 go down a lot, and that should push up things like the two-year yield. Bring it in close. Uh, uh, a managing director of the IMF just emailed me and says, ask Schumacher what we see tomorrow. Mike Schumacher, what do we see tomorrow in the inflation report? Yeah, focus on core. We've got that coming in at 0.4%. And that's probably not going to shock anybody, Tom, but we think about how the market reacts to surprises as well. And in our view, it's very skewed. So let's say core comes in hot, 0 0.5, 0 0.6. We think right, you get right. much more of a reaction to a hot print than a weak one. Because again, the Fed wants to hike. And in our simple calculus, the Fed's going to ease only if something breaks. So core coming in at 0 0.4, 0 0.5, even 0.3, doesn't really yeah. change that aspect of the Fed's decision making. Two, two banks breaking, John, didn't get it done. Well, we well, need Mike, more than that. That's the question, isn't it? Hasn't something broken? Something additional, John. So something broke. You've got a huge Band-Aid on it, whether it's Credit Suisse, whether it's SVB, take your pick. And now it's the question of, as your last guest pointed out, where is the strike on that put? Is that put still there? Should investors rationally think it is? Perhaps so, but you need to have, at least for the Fed to come in or the ECB or the SNB, another big debacle out there for the markets to become even more unnerved. Well, the immediate concern was spillover. Uh, Mike, have you drawn conclusions on how much spillover we're going to see from those incidents? Really tough to see and quantify at this point, John. SVB seems like it's pretty localized. When you think about Credit Suisse, that's a more challenging, difficult unwind. But assuming that deal closes pretty soon, probably not a ton of spillover. But I think the bigger issue is, in particular in the U.S., you've got thousands of banks, and in particular something like 100 that range between 10 billion and 100 billion in assets. We simply don't have a lot of visibility into those balance sheets, those structures right now. Are they huge? No. So, but collectively, could there be a problem? Perhaps. Well, Mike, I'll keep returning to the question I've returned to then. What are the longer variable lags of a banking shark? And is it too soon to draw conclusions? If you're the Federal Reserve and you sit there on May 3rd, do you have the incoming information, the sufficient information you need to make that call? No, you don't know at that point. You'll know if you had an immediate problem. That's going to be evident in the next week or two. But there simply is not enough time to know, is the system really on solid footing right now? A lot of clients talk about things like commercial real estate. Where does that go? Probably doesn't look that great. Will the Fed have that information on May 3rd? No, I doubt it. What about deposit flight, deposit betas? How much does having an iPhone and a fancy app change those betas? Well, they get faster, they get higher, but to what degree? We can't tell. Neither can the Fed quite yet. Mike, John Williams of the New York Fed said, Basically, it's not our fault. It's not because we went from zero to 4.5, 5% in a space of 12 months. 
we didn't have anything to do with this. These incidents, idiosyncratic. Mike, would you take the, the same page as John Williams over at the New York Fed? Well, I think you've got to focus on monetary policy versus the Fed's regulatory authority. And does it make a lot of sense to have those really embedded in the same institution? We did a call recently with Sheila Baer. She said no. They should be split to some degree. So monetary policy, yes, it's been aggressive. But frankly, the Fed waited a long time to get tough, too. It could have moved certainly back in 21. I think that would have helped quite a bit. And it chose to wait. Mike Schumacher. Oh, there goes his governorship. Mike Schumacher. Thank you, sir. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Unfortunately, we have to do an audible with John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to President Trump, Ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush. And for those of you on radio, Bolton appears today with arm in sling. No doubt one of the people going after Bolton. What'd you do to the other guy, Ambassador? Did you hit him hard? It was pretty grim, I have to say. I'm sure it was some Bolton drama there. Let's get to the drama of the moment. And I want to begin with a Wall Street Journal reporter jailed in Russia. You have been inflammatory and said, throw the bums out. You want the ambassador of Russia to be removed from the soil of the United States of America. Discuss that. Well, look, this is uh, obviously an entirely political decision by the Kremlin. Uh, They're they're taking this reporter hostage. They're accusing him of espionage. Uh, We know that's not true because uh, it's been a long, long time since we've used reporters for that purpose uh, in order to protect them from exactly this kind of thing. Uh, Clearly, uh, the Russians want to exchange uh, the reporter for something. We don't know what yet, but uh, uh, I, I think instead of pleading with him to let Uh, this hostage go, and he is a hostage in effect. Uh, I think we've got to declare the Russian ambassador persona non grata. I think we ought to go to our NATO allies uh, and ask them to do the same because it could have happened to any one of their journalists. Uh, A a strong response is the only thing the Russians uh, understand. And if we don't, if we don't start now, Gershkovich could be in jail for a long time. Ambassador Bolton, I want to continue this discussion, but because of time and such an ample news flow, we've got to uh, move on. John Bolton, we have an intelligence leak. This is not Matt Damon, and I know Matt Damon was going to play the part of you in another movie. It's not the Bourne identity. It's not paper under park benches and that. This is your world being affected by digital technology, digital media. Do we need to radically change our intelligence distribution because of new technology? 
Well, I think there's a lot we can do to safeguard classified material better. And and I would certainly say, based on what we know publicly, uh, the presumption at this moment is this is some kind of leak out of uh, the Pentagon or other U.S. sources. Uh, and we don't know whether we're at the end of it or not. It could be more. However, I would also caution at this point that we not draw too many conclusions. Uh, th this could be uh, an influence operation by somebody we don't know who. And once you get into the world of counterintelligence, uh, it makes uh, being in a hall of mirrors look easy. It's very complicated. And and uh, depending on how sophisticated the actor might be, mm -hmm. uh, really can, can wrench your mind around. So we've seen some anomalies in what's been reported. Uh, just this morning in South Korea, South Korea time, the government there said that the information that looked to be leaked about uh, uh, about their consideration of selling artillery shells to Ukraine was false. Uh, so we don't know whether that's disinformation right. uh, too. But all I'm saying is, while I don't have any basis on which to contest what seems to be the case that this is a U.S. leak and therefore a huge U.S. problem, I just think uh, we need to be very careful be before we jump to, jump to too many conclusions. I look at this ambassador, I'm going to do an audible here, and it's just a general question for the American public, not Republican, not Democrat. In your experience, how removed is the intelligence community's process in day-to-day -day grind from the way it's perceived by Hollywood? Is Hollywood accurate, or are they just off the mark on a movie-by-movie -movie basis? Well, the Hollywood movies are very exciting, and 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 some of that does occur. But but you know we collect uh, huge amounts of intelligence through what we call euphemistically national technical means, meaning electronic uh, and other forms of surveillance. Uh, frankly, we need a lot more human intelligence collection than we have. Uh, and we need a greater clandestine operations capability than we have. I think Puritans in the foreign policy establishment have looked down on clandestine operations for a long time. Uh, we're in a very dangerous world. We, we could we could use a lot more. Mm -hmm. But but it's it's uh, it's something I think Americans, if they really knew what our intelligence collection capabilities were, would be very proud of what we're able to do. Uh, John Bolton, I want to move to the bipartisan thrust of Washington against China. Is it should we be cautious because there's such a fixed bipartisan nature to our anger over China? Do we overreact? Well, I don't think we've overreacted yet. I, and I, I agree with you that there's certainly an unusual character of the bipartisan nature of the concern about China. But I do think the underlying concern is warranted. I think uh, China is essentially an existential threat to us and the West as a whole in this century. And their challenge is really across the board. It's not just political and military, although it's very much in those sectors. It's economic as well. Decades of stealing our intellectual property, discriminating against foreign investors and traders, manipulating the international financial system to its advantage. Uh, there, there's a lot that's gone on for a long time. We're just really beginning to appreciate and catch up to. Uh, so I think the, the, the bipartisan right. concern here is warranted. Among others, he's talked to James Stravitas, of course, the former admiral, uh, about a Pacific Rim build-out. I know that the United States has a new dialogue with the Philippines, among others. Does Bolton suggest that we need to rebuild out our military in the Pacific Rim, not just for Taiwan, but also for the South China Sea? 
Uh, I think we need to rebuild it across the board. I, I think the next American president needs defense budget increases in the range of what Ronald Reagan did during his presidency, maybe even more. I think that implies even greater cuts to domestic spending to get our deficit down. But but let's be clear, we've been asleep at the switch for a long time here. The Going back to the end of the Cold War, people said it was the end of history. We had a peace dividend. We've got to put all that behind us. We, we face a very wide range of threats. Let's just take the Pacific. Get, get a map out that has the mm-hmm. Pacific Ocean in the middle of it. It's a long way away. We need uh, probably 50 more naval war vessels right. in uh, our fleet just to deal with the Pacific, let alone increases for the rest of the world. John Bolton, what's so important here is those of us of a certain vintage remember our intelligence misestimates of the Soviet Union. Do you have a confidence in our intelligence of China, or do we make the same misgaging, misguiding that we did with the Soviet Union? Do we know what we're talking about with Beijing? Well, I think we've got pretty good estimates on key areas. Some of it's visible to us already. Their capabilities for offensive cyber operations, for example, uh, the the military buildup that uh, that they've undertaken in uh, anti-access area denial weapons to push us back from the uh, western shores of the Pacific. Their anti-satellite weapons capabilities to blind our eyes in the sky in time of crisis or conflict. That evidence is is out there, as is the evidence of things like weaponizing what otherwise look like commercial companies, Huawei, ZTE. They're not telecommunications firms. Mm-hmm. They're arms of the Chinese state trying to take control of fifth generation telecommunications. John Bolton, thank you for joining Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Former Ambassador Bolton, of course, has worked with the National Security Council as well. Always uh, controversial. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.